welcome to the Data Rockstars Coffee Podcast with me, Kelly Peters. And me, Medina Donis. This week, we are talking about global versus local news in related to data and data protection. And the common theme this week is metadata. So uh, we found out about this story quite recently. It was only in the Vista Advertiser yesterday. And uh, so very local to you, Kelly. Very local to me on my doorstep. So we thought it would be quite good to, to pick up on it. There is a local resident who put in a freedom of information request to the local council to find out more information about a decision that had been made to increase rates for allotments back in 2019. Now, freedom of information requests allow individuals to approach typically public sector bodies. If you're a a private company working under contract to the public sector, you may also be subject to freedom of information, but it allows transparency in terms of things like decision making, budget spend, that type of thing, allows the public to have access to that information if they feel that they can't find it easily in a public place. And so you can find various different requests that will get put in asking for details about spend in certain areas or in this case it was around decision making and why rates had had been increased and what the rationale behind that was so it's it's, the idea of it is really to promote transparency in public sector obviously Mm -hmm. then looking to serve the people within their areas the chap who made the request didn't get any response well i think he started off just purely with an inquiry so he Mm -hmm. actually then formalized it with a freedom of information request in august 2020 but again, didn't get a response from the council on that. So he then, I think, gave them, I think he gave them about three months and then complained to the Information Commissioner's Office, which he has the right to do. And they prompted the town council to say, you know, you need to either respond or give us a copy of the, re- the response that you made. Now, the town council claimed that they responded in July mm-hmm. and sent a copy of the letter to the Information Commissioner. But within that letter, it refers to some of the points that were made in the August freedom of information request as opposed to just pure inquiries that have been made in July and so whilst the letter was dated July it was referring to points that were made in the August FOI request so the information commissioner was not their sharpest point at this and didn't pick that up and kind of actually took it as sufficient evidence that they'd responded but the individual appealed that decision and on being instructed to examine the metadata of the council's IT systems and what when the, the email had been created they found it was actually created November the 18th 2020 <laughs> so it was in fact created on November the 18th 2020 which was the date that the ICO had first instructed the council that they needed to respond and so they'd actually then created individuals within the council have created and fabricated this email and falsified the date on it to make it look like they'd responded earlier to avoid a admitting the fact that they hadn't responded and probably getting a some kind of slap on the wrist or penalty that they were worried about so they haven't given any explanation to this but it appears that there are individuals within the council who were aware of it councillors and they haven't necessarily been open or transparent at all with both Mm -hmm. the individual and the ico and it's really if you've made the mistake of not responding to an original request the best thing you can do is probably own up rather than try and falsify a response because somewhere along the line you have the potential to get found out and the ICO can instruct that sort of more Uh technical examination of IT systems so if you've made a mistake you're better off owning it apologizing it for it and then dealing with it rather than trying to cover your tracks because I can't imagine that they're going to get off lightly for this. 
No, and if you imagine, as the individual who's put in this request, knowing full well the communication um, that he has had, that what has been submitted to the commissioner must be wrong, it's it would galvanise me to make a further complaint, to say, no, something is very wrong here. And I think what's really interesting, and what transpired was a simple request, has now become, you know, quite embarrassing, I would say, for Bicester Town Council. Absolutely, and, and it was six months worth of time so from when they made that they created that email in the november it's only up to may it was may 2021 when the ico then ordered them to have their it systems checked that they then came clean and it's like why would you keep that going i think the point that you've made is is a fair one is if you know and willingly haven't given the information own up to it you know so she you can accept the slap on the wrist and you can move forward you can apologize to the individual to say look we got it wrong this but you know there are additional ramifications obviously the individual that has manipulated the email could well go down a disciplinary for this so it's one request has led to quite a few issues so um but it goes to show how easy i think it is to manipulate data on the surface for sure on, but i yeah. think there's always then the tracks isn't there around absolutely what's actually happened and, and who's done it and i think yeah. it flies i think the probably the worst element will be the lack of trust yeah. you know for, for particularly you know if you think about you as a local Bista resident mm. you know you want to have trust in the people that are running your local area you know making decisions for you and what's going to happen in the town and there's a very distinct lack of transparency and then that leads you to question why don't you want to be clear about something that's relatively simple you know in terms of the, the grand scheme of things this is a decision we made and why but you're trying to cover something so it's why and then, then the trust starts to erode and then that has wider ramifications in terms of the local community and overall it just isn't worth it <laughs> no and it's something that we've always talked about you know i know we're talking about freedom of information here but we talk about it in data protection it's it is about trust and reputation and stuff and that's what you need to be mindful of because you know it's hit the local press you know people are talking about it we're talking about it you know for, for one request look at the impact it's had and, and quite right it then makes you question potential other decision making that has gone on but let's not dwell on that eh? <laughs> <laughs> so you the, found an interest in the more global story that has potentially a bigger more wide-ranging impact on on more individuals absolutely absolutely so earlier this week i saw a, a message post that said that an organization called cineverse which i'll be perfectly honest i'd never heard of them no. before had notified the authorities in america they had had an ongoing data breach of up to five years so you're like okay that's pretty shocking bear in mind that i automatically think about marriott and that their breach when they bought a company had been an ongoing breach you think okay uh, that's quite dramatic but this company essentially has 235 clients uh, if you if i just say that you're like oh, that's a lot of clients but if i say to you that that is 90 percent of the world's telecommunication companies and they are responsible for the backbone of all communications that go uh, for text messages before uh, around these uh, mobile networks you then start to think oh okay it's a significant breach if i then say right. actually this organization routes 740 billion text messages every year yeah, Ouch. you start to think <laughs> this is quite this is a little bit uncomfortable the link between what you said and, and, and this story is that from the metadata, so this is the the information about the text message itself, you can find out quite a lot. So 
um, from a text message, I can find out the location, I can find out the telephone numbers of the sender and the receiver. It can also tell you the, the individual also had access to the content of the message, but alone the fact I know where your location is, I'll know the two telephone numbers. It's quite a lot of information. Now, mm. what makes this an even more significant breach is that most companies today, like Microsoft, Google, uh, Twitter, Amazon, have implemented two-factor authentication. Huh? Two-factor authentication is sent via a text message. Yeah, typically. So what I can now do is through all of that, I could know when a package is going to be delivered. I will know your login. I could know your password. I could know the two-factor authentication pin code because it's coming through the, the text message. I can profile you based on these text message exchanges alone. So it is a genuinely a phenomenal breach that has happened. And the question has to be, how did you not know that your network had been infiltrated? You know, and they've had some internal whistleblowers that have quite rightly not want to be named, but have, that have given indication as to the type of data that could have been made available. So whilst it's a large number of companies, we're talking about potentially billions of people that have been affected by this. Because just think about what you exchange on your phone as SMS. Mm -hmm. You think it's safe, you think it's secure, you think, you're yeah, oh, I've got two-factor authentication. You don't necessarily think, has my transaction between those two places been affected? No, and I think it's really interesting from the perspective of awareness. I think, you know, when you use your mobile and you download an app, something like WhatsApp or Signal or Messenger, those kind of messaging applications, you're very aware of the fact it's another company. Yeah that is there processing that information mm -hmm. and you've got a choice to make whereas i'd never really considered how sms's are transmitted mm -hmm. you kind of think it goes over the communications network and it's between okay um you know between o2 and vodafone or at&t verizon whoever mm -hmm. you know in the states and you kind of you assume it's within their networks and there's you don't know that whole background infrastructure there's this company here that is managing and transmitting and doing all the billing and everything mm -hmm. for those on behalf of those companies and yeah. that's just um it's just really interesting that then that lack of awareness and you don't have a choice because that's the structure that's the infrastructure mm -hmm. you know it's like bt owning the majority of the the phone lines within mm -hmm. the, the uk you, you can't choose whether or not it goes over that infrastructure so the responsibility they have to protect that information is, is immense and five-year access to that information is terrifying and yeah. I imagine the volume of information it must be overwhelming but I'm mm. guessing that the if somebody wanted to make use of that information if they have particular targets mm. then it's a gold mine and I imagine it's going to be more for the big you could suggest potentially like state-sponsored sort of more espionage spy where it's going to be specific targets around government you know things like that rather than maybe the individual like you and me which might be sort of more beneficial in, in sort of other data hacks that that kind of top secret info that might be seen to be more secure over text message i mean you raise an interesting point about who could it be because part of me is either it's going to be potentially statewide group or it's going to be a lone teenager who's bored and sees this as a challenge because that's what they do mm. they see like pentagon and people like that. it's like this is a challenge to me i want to see I can do, and i want to see how long this can prolong this kind of attack and stuff so it's it'd be interesting to see if we ever find out where this come from but 
the other point you made which was really interesting as well is the what's the data going to be used for definitely where you know how much has actually been siphoned off or mm-hmm. taken and then at what point because I think a few people have made the point, sort of cybersecurity experts, so on, that nothing has seemingly come from it so far. But if it's been accessed and it's there, at what point does it become useful? Or is it useful in the, rather than being for sale on the dark web, mm. like, you know, passwords and that login credentials, that type of thing? Maybe it's actually, given the nature of what they've maybe had access to, maybe it's more beneficial to be kept quiet, secret, advantage, like a John Grisham spy novel. (laughs) Wow. I think that brings this to a conclusion. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. So it's, I mean, what more can you say other than that's something that's very much outside of, of our control. And I think as individuals, all we can do is keep an eye on anything that looks weird or suspicious and make sure that we change passwords, just do the best that we can. But there are some things that I believe are genuinely outside of our control and something like this just um, demonstrates that. So another interesting week of discussions mm-hmm. comes to a close. Whizzed by as always. If you spot any data-related news stories, listeners, that you'd like us to discuss, please do get in touch with us on coffee at dbxuk.com. We always appreciate you tuning in and listening to us and we hope you join us next week for more insight into the world of data and data protection. Mm